uh, let me just take a, another minute to welcome you guys. Uh, let me also welcome those of you who are joining us on Facebook Live. It's good to see you guys again. We had some technical difficulties last week. Uh, the fault was Facebook. You know, Facebook was down everywhere, so we were not on Facebook Live last week. But, of course, we are tonight, and it's good to have you guys. Hopefully, on your way in tonight, you picked up a copy of the notes that we're going to be looking at tonight. There are a number of fill-in-the-blanks there. Now, here, here's the way I want us to do this, because there are quite a few fill-in-the-blanks. Um, at, at the end of our talk tonight, and I'm going to try to quit uh, about 50 minutes into our talk. So uh, after about 50 minutes, uh, I'm just going to shut things down, and we're going to do a time of Q&A. And during that Q&A, if we missed blanks and that sort of thing, or you couldn't figure out how to spell something or whatever the case may be, uh, we'll, we'll come back to it at that time, if that's okay with you guys. All right. So let's, uh, let's just dive right back into the age of imperial Christianity. Now, a couple, couple of important things happened last week. Actually, they were sort of unfolding as we wrapped up. And uh, let, let me catch you up on what those are. Uh, we have uh, a new pope. Well, actually, we have our first pope, Pope Leo I. Now, I realize there's some technical arguments against um, Leo being the first pope. Some say that it was Damasus. We'll say more about him in just a minute. And others think that it was Gregory, who is the, the man who I, I would say was the second pope. He came right after Leo. I, I tend to agree with um, with most historians, most church historians who credit the first pope as um, being Pope Leo I. Now, Damasus, do you remember this guy? Damasus uh, was the bishop of Rome. And this is why some people claim that he was the, the first pope. He is the one who declared succession under who? Peter. You remember he used the, the passage, I would say it was a very bad interpretation of Matthew 16, 13 through 18, where Jesus says, um, Peter, um, based on your profession of faith, I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's really what was said. But Damasus understood that to mean that Jesus was saying Peter was the rock and that um, Jesus would build his church on Peter. I'll say more about that in a few minutes. But through this succession of popes, or the succession of Peter, succession of Peter, he claimed to be the bishop or the leader or the pastor, the big papa over all the bishops, okay? Well, then... Once he passes away, Leo I becomes the bishop of Constant, or um, I'm sorry, the bishop of Rome. Now he went further, if you remember, he went further than Damasus. Damasus again claimed that he was the bishop over all the bishops, but Leo declared that he was the preeminent bishop over all the bishops over all the pastors and all of the people everywhere. So he is the bishop of bishops and the bishop 
of all the people. Now listen, you need to understand, especially for our conversation tonight, you need to understand that not everyone was on board with this. Not everyone just accepted this. He certainly had lots of opposition, but even though he had lots of opposition against him, he had people opposing his ideas that he claimed to be the head of the bishops and the head of all Christian people everywhere. Leo I also had some important things going for him. For example, he was a member of the Roman aristocracy. That matters because he was very well connected to the movers and shakers that were still living in Rome. He was politically savvy. He was a very good diplomat, a good arbitrator. And he did some things, some really good things for the people. And not just the Christians, but for all of the people living in Rome. Let me tell you about one of the big ones. In 452 AD, Attila the Hun invaded northern Italy. Now, Attila was one of the the greatest, most feared enemies of the Roman Empire. I mean, they were really afraid of this guy. His name in Latin means the scourge of God. Almost sounds like a a heavy metal band, doesn't it? Something you might have heard of in the 80s or the early 90s. The scourge of God. Well, Attila came uh, into northern Italy. You can imagine this conqueror he sees as the prize of all of his efforts, the city of Rome. But Pope Leo I, through diplomatic means, persuaded Attila not to attack the city of Rome. And he made this case with Attila. He, He literally goes out to see the guy. I'm, I'm gonna. I'm, I'm saying on, on diplomatic means, but we were not in the the tent with Attila. You know, we we weren't out, we weren't out in the in the battlefield with Leo and Attila. So we don't know if, if he said Attila, let me tell you right now, you're not gonna invade this city, and that's the final word. I have a hard time thinking that he approached Attila that way. He could have been begging, pleading, not. Who knows? We'll never know. But he did his um, persuading based on Rome being the holy city of God. No one else had, had called Rome the holy city of God. But Leo does it right here for the first time. Legend has it that Peter and Paul appeared to Attila in a dream, and they threatened to strike him dead if he did not settle and make a deal with Pope Leo I. Well, Attila decided not to attack. He told his soldiers that they could go into Rome and loot the city for how many days? Anybody know? Fourteen days. He could loot the city for 14 days, but he gave them the orders not to hurt one single person. And that's exactly what happened. The the Huns, and really the Huns was made up of about three or four different groups of people, but they were all under Attila the Hun. So these Hun soldiers, they go in for 14 days, they loot the city, they walk out with everything that they can, they can carry basically, but they didn't hurt the people. And when the Huns left the city, the people rallied around Pope Leo I. 
they look at him as the Savior. Now, let me also remind you that when we walked away from last week's talk, the church had a new home. The home of the church is not in Jerusalem. Uh, it's no longer in Antioch. Remember, that was, um, that was Paul's home base for his missionary journeys. Antioch is the first place that the followers of the way, the followers of Jesus, the believers were called Christians. And it wasn't meant to be a good term, it was a derogatory term. They were calling these followers of Jesus, these little Christ, these many me's. But the home of the church, it's not in Rome anymore, nor is it in Antioch. When we leave last week, the new home for the church is Rome. Why Rome? Well, there are several different reasons. Let me give you two or three. At that time, Rome was the largest city in the world. It had about a million people. It's hard to know that for sure. There's about a million people, about 200 to 250,000 of them, so somewhere between 20 and 25% of all the people living in Rome were Christians. So a lot of Christians concentrated in this area. Rome was also the city where Peter and Paul preached. They were famous for preaching there, in fact. Uh, it was in Rome that both Paul and Peter were martyred under the persecution of Rome. They were presumably buried in Rome. In fact, Peter is said to be buried under St. Peter's Basilica in Vatican City. And of course, St. Peter's Basilica is named after St. Peter. Um, but that's where he's said to be. L listen, the reality is the bodies of Peter and Paul were either thrown onto you know, um, a pagan burn pile or thrown into the city dump, or thrown into the Tiber River. But Peter and Paul were prominent in the city of Rome. And of course, not to be too cynical here, but Pope Leo lived in Rome. He was the bishop of Rome. So, obviously, he's going to think that that's where the city of the church, the holy city, uh, should be. Now, this is a big deal. We're going to make a big deal out of it tonight. Not, not for the whole talk, but for a good portion of it. I want to emphasize the fact, because again, this matters, but I want to emphasize the fact that many, many Christians were against the things that Leo was claiming about himself. Many Christians were against the changes in the church. They, they were against him being the head of the church. They rejected the whole line of succession. And uh, they were just not with this. Let, let, let me give you about five reasons. And I think you have this uh, in your notes. These are fill-ins. Let me give you five reasons why many Christians rejected what Pope Leo I was claiming. You ready to get your notes? All right, here we go. Number one, it conflicts with what Jesus taught about servant leadership. It conflicts with what Jesus taught about servant leadership. So, so what did Jesus teach about servant leadership? Well, last week after our talk, we did a little bit of Q&A. 
and someone asked me the question, and, and honestly, I can't remember now because, you know, I'm getting old. I can't remember if it was, it was during our, our large talk or if someone asked me this, you know, in a group of two or three. But the question was, do I see any similarities between what the church was going through in the first century? Well, not the first century. This would be the fourth and fifth centuries. Any, similar, any similarities, I'm sorry, any similarities between what the church was going through then and the church today? And I have a couple of them, but I've, I've been thinking a lot about that question since then, and I want to answer it again. I want to answer it to make sure everybody hears it and uh, maybe even um, answer it a little more thoroughly. One of the similarities I see in the church today that was happening in the church in the 4th and 5th century is this issue of servant leadership. And, and, and the fact that, I mean, lots of, lots of pastors, but not, not just pastors. We're kind of the easy ones to look at. But, hey, listen, I, I'm ordained as a Baptist deacon. I grew up Southern Baptist. I was ordained Southern Baptist, uh, my call into the ministry, but I was a Southern Baptist deacon first. So, you know, I've been a deacon. I've worked on deacon boards. I've seen some good ones. I've seen some not so good ones. Um, we don't have a deacon board here per se, but, you know, through the years, dealt with some tough Leaders who were not pastors, but they were, you know, important and I would say significant leaders that did not model servant leadership. But it bothers me the most when it comes to, to pastoral leadership because I think, I think pastors set the bar for what servant leadership looks like. Well, they, we set the bar for what leadership is like in the church, the people we influence. Um, you know, and others that are watching us, you know, other pastors, younger pastors, for example, that learn from us. And at Rocky River Church, we have, I would say, about five or six young people who feel called to the ministry. And, um, you know, we have two, three, maybe even four guys that are looking toward the ministry as a second career for them, a second, you know, career in their, in their life. They're in their mid-30s. So we, we set a standard, or we should. And it bugs me to see some pastors act like or treated like they're rock stars. It shouldn't be that way. You know, maybe you've heard me say something like this before, but I'll say it again. You know, whether Rocky River Church is a church of, you know, 500 or 700 or 1,000 or what, whatever the number is, you're never going to see me walking around with some young preacher boys following me around carrying my Bible for me. There, there's, there's never going to be someone around here who meets me out in the parking lot 
to bring all my stuff in, my bags and stuff, and then unpacks it for me in my office so that all I have to do is walk in, sit down, and get to work. There, there's, there's not reserved pastor parking out there with cones sitting there keeping other people from parking in my preferred spot. Although if I had a parking spot, let me, let me tell you, there would be a sign that says, if you park here, you preach here. <laughs> that would keep people out, wouldn't it? I saw that somewhere. I just think that's the funniest thing. Very clever. Um. You know, there's not a couple extra sets of keys around here to my truck so that when it's warm outside or when, it, you know, it's hot in July, August, whatever, somebody goes out, cranks up my truck, gets the air going for me, or they fill it up with gas, or they take it down to Auto Bell for me. And my son James works at Auto Bell, so I might let him take my truck to Auto Bell and clean it, but that's different. You know, I, I don't walk around with an entourage. I don't need an entourage. I don't need mighty men. A pastor doesn't need mighty men. Mighty men is an Old Testament thing with King David. A pastor today doesn't need mighty men. A pastor today doesn't need that kind of protection around him. You know, Jesus, when he was, when he was going into Jerusalem for the final time, he's, he's going to Jerusalem to be crucified. Some of his disciples were having a conversation amongst themselves. And they were talking about who's going to be the greatest. You know, who's going to sit on Jesus' cabinet? Who's, who's going to be the chief of staff? Who's going to be in charge of this? Who's going to be the greatest? Um, a couple of these guys, their mama got involved in the conversation. And so Jesus stops them, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing somewhat the, the story because it's about 30 verses in the Gospel of John. But Jesus stops them and says, hey, hey, guys, have you seen how the rest of the world does leadership? Have you noticed how the Romans do leadership? There's this pecking order, and um, there's this race to the top, and they'll step on anyone to get to the top, and they don't care who they hurt, and they lord their leadership over you. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, we're trying to decide who that's going to be. Who's going to be on the top? Well, we know we can't be on the very top. You're going to be on the very top. You're, you're going to be one telling us what to do. But we're trying to figure out who, which, which of us is going to get to implement the plans. We don't, we don't need to, to live in the, the biggest house. We just want to live in that neighborhood with you. And Jesus said, well, you know, our leadership's not going to be like that at all. So Jesus taught them things like... Um, the first will be last, and the last will be first. Jesus taught them things like, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and give his life as a ransom for many. And then, of course, you know, pr probably the greatest image of Jesus in, in the Gospels, other than him dying on the cross and then the resurrected Lord, would have to be at the Passover feast. We, we would call it the Lord's Supper. When Jesus took on the role of a slave, 
bowed down at the feet of his disciples with a serving towel over his arm and washed their feet. That's why when you get into the book of Acts, and I can never remember which chapter it is, but chapter, se- chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, something like that, where they have the first deacons. There's a, there's a, little, uh, there's a rift about um, the, the women being served and the, the widows are not getting served just right. There's a question about some of the Gentile women being served and the Jewish women being served. There's some question about that. And they select deacons to take over the tables. And the reason they do that is because they practically have to pry the tables out of the hands of Peter and John and Philip. It's almost like, well, they, they say, um, listen, we'll take care of the orphans or the widows here. We'll, we'll take care of the feeding. We'll tend the tables. You go out and preach. We can do the tables, but we, we can't preach like you can. You go do that, and we'll do this. And it's almost like these guys are saying, no way. You're not taking this table out of my hands. I remember what Jesus told us. He said, our leadership's not going to be like these Romans. I mean, they relent. Eventually, they go out and preach. But that whole idea, that whole concept of servant leadership, it was it was deep inside of these, these apostles. Um, that goes missing in the 4th and 5th centuries. Um, I think that servant-minded leadership is missing a lot today. Uh, number two, we're talking again about the reasons why many Christians rejected Pope Leo I changes to the church. Well, number two, it conflicts with what the Bible teaches about church ecclesiology and structure. L- look, the bottom line is you, you just can't find a um, hierarchy of bishops in the New Testament. It's, it's just not there. I mean, Peter himself, when, when he writes... Um, in 1 Peter 5.1, he says, To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder. He never saw himself as in a high-ranking role. He never understood there to be a hierarchy. You just had a pastor of a church. And yes, there was leadership given there, but there was not this hierarchy that we see develop in the church. Um, number three, it contradicts what Peter said about himself. I just read to you, 1 Peter 5, 1, To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings who also share in the glory to be revealed. I- I'm just writing to you as a fellow elder. Peter never saw himself as the bishop to be followed um, by other bishops. He just, he just didn't. But do you, know, do you know why you can make a claim like that? Well, hang on, I'll tell you in a few minutes. Number four, the New Testament never refers to Rome as the holy city. The New Testament never refers to Rome as the holy city. It just, it just doesn't. 
In fact, Jerusalem is referred to as the city of God. And then number five, the Bible says that Jesus is the chief cornerstone. In Matthew 16, where Jesus says, you are Peter, changes Simon's name from Simon to Peter. The word he uses there for Peter is pebble, little rock. The word used for Jesus later in the New Testament, the chief cornerstone. He is the cornerstone that holds it all up. The church of Jesus Christ is built on church, uh, built on Christ. Not, not a man, not even a great man like I'm sure the apostle Peter was a great man. And Leah may have been a great man too. I, I don't know. He looks like Santa Claus. If you ever Google him. So, so look. If, if these are the reasons why so many people are against Leo and his reforms and him being the head of the church and that sort of thing, how in the world does he become Pope? I mean, what, what makes it possible for him to become the Pope? Well, the answer is simple. Once Emperor Constantine became a Christian in AD 312, and, and then once he gives the Edict of Milan, making it, legal for people to become Christians, and he uh, essentially ends the persecution of Christians in Rome, you begin to have thousands and thousands and thousands of people across the empire to start joining the church. And listen, listen, with no evidence of real conversion. They become a part of the church, but who knows if they're really saved. Well, the truth is, you just have lots and lots of people who come into the church that have had no saving experience with Jesus Christ. So when Pope Leo I started to run the church like the emperor ran the empire, well, it just seemed normal to these people. That's what they had grown up with. That's how they understood the leadership structure of the world. That's how they had been led all their lives. So when Pope Leo starts to lead that way, well, it, it just seemed natural. It, it was what they were used to. So listen, just keep this dynamic in mind. The church is growing like crazy. I mean, it's gone from being persecuted to preferred. They've gone from being outlaws to not only allowed in the empire, they're promoted in the empire. And I want you to understand something. I want you to understand about me as a pastor, you know, as your pastor. I believe in church growth. I believe in it. I believe the church ought to grow. I believe the church must grow. I believe that when the local church is not growing, there's something wrong. You know, it's, it's just like with, with uh, a child. If you have, you know, a kid, child, young child. If, um, did, I, did I see recently where a baby was born weighing 15 pounds, like a natural childbirth, 15 pounds? Did I see that recently? Y'all saw it too. I didn't dream that. That actually wouldn't be a dream. That'd be a nightmare. Even for a man, you know, <laughs> who's obviously never given birth. But, of course, I have had a couple kidney stones. But uh, a 15-pound baby, can you imagine giving birth to that baby? Well, that's a big old baby. But 
um, if that baby still weighs 15 pounds when it's a year old, there's a problem. If a baby isn't growing and they're supposed to grow, there's a problem. Well, I, I believe that Christ ordained in the church to grow. I mean, he gives us this mission, this mandate to reach the world, to reach the world with the gospel and disciple people, to teach them how to reach others as they're going in the world. So if the church is not growing, there's something wrong. However, church growth alone does not guarantee that God is being honored. Church growth alone, you know, just having a, a big congregation does, does not guarantee that Jesus is being lifted up and that the church is being led by the Holy Spirit. Church growth alone does not mean that a church is healthy. Church growth alone does not indicate that the church is a disciple-making church and the church is living out the great commission of Jesus. But during the 4th and 5th centuries, the church is growing by leaps and bounds. And listen, the church begins to have two things that it had never had before. Peace and power. Peace and power. Peace because of Constantine and the Edict of Milan, they were no longer being persecuted. They had power because after the conversion of Constantine, Christianity became the, the preferred religion of the Roman Empire. And then the church begins to grow by the thousands. And listen, you have pagans coming into the church. And that's, that's, not, um, that's just not a, an evangelical Protestant pastor going, and we let all this riff-raff in the church, bunch of pagans in, and just all went to hell at that point. That's, that's not what I mean. But you have people coming into the church that have no conversion experience. A lot of people joined the church just because they didn't want to be on the outside of religion. I mean, the emperor is a Christian. You, you want to be able to identify with him. I have a good friend who is... Um, it's a highway patrolman um, in North Carolina. And every time there is a new mayor, um, not mayor, a new governor of the state of North Carolina, if he or she is of a different party, he has to go and change his voter registration. If the new governor is a Democrat, he goes and registers Democrat. If he's or she's a Republican, he goes and registers that way because... Apparently, and I don't want to get a, any contact from the, the governor's office on this, but apparently when you're a state employee and you guard the governor, being affiliated with his political party is an important thing, or her political party. Well, some, some of the people in Rome were becoming Christians because Constantine was a Christian, Many people joined the church because they wanted to improve their social status or even their political status. Some joined the church just because it was good business. Unless you think that this is only a 4th and 5th century thing, let me remind you, I grew up in the South. I grew up in the 
in the Bible belt. I like to say the buckle of the Bible belt. And I just didn't know a lot of people growing up that didn't go to church. Most people went to church. They didn't necessarily live like it, but they went to church. You know why many people went to church in the South? Because that's what you did. If you wanted to go to grandma's to eat dinner, you better not have to tell her you stayed home and didn't go to church that morning. She's going to want to know if everybody went to church. You might get a hard time if you don't go to church. You go to church to see your friends. You go to church to hang out. You go to church because you collect business cards there. This is not necessarily, you know, the only time this has ever happened in the church. Okay, early I told you that there were Christians who didn't agree with the direction of Damasus and Pope Leo I and what they were doing in leading the church. Well, during this time, you have believers begin to flee the cities. And you, you have, at first, what would be called desert monks. And... Monk just means single or solitary, but you begin to have these, these people who, who decide to go completely the other way because they don't like the direction of the church. They go and live alone out in the deserts. And then eventually they, um, they change that up and they, they realize that they need other people. So you start to have monasteries. And then you have, well, the, the feminine word for monk is nonus. It's where, you know, we just shorten that and say nuns. But nuns begin to live in convents, which just means a place of gathering. A monastery is just a place where monks gathered. And they lived usually in extreme poverty and um, they would eat just enough to, to stay alive. They, they had nothing. They were communal societies for the most part. Um, so they went the, the other way. Let me tell you about a couple of monks that you need to know. Let me give you a couple of names. Pacomius is one of them. P-A-C-H-O-M-I-U-S. He lived from... 292 to 346, he was the founder of communal monasticism in the Western Roman Empire. Um, his sister, Mary, founded religious communities for women. But this is, this is the first monk, at least as, as far as we can tell, he's the first monk that said, okay, let's, we've decided we're going to live this single solitary life. L let's live solitary lives, but not as singles. Let's develop in these communities. They'll be self-sustaining communities, and we'll live here, and we'll practice our um, piety, and uh, we'll depend on each other. They became communal societies. And by, again, by communal, I mean something a little different than what some of you think of as communal. communal. You know, if you were a hippie during the 60s out in California or somewhere like that. Where's, uh, where's Steve at, Merlene? I'd like to... I'd, I'd like for him to tell us about his Woodstock days back in the day. 
Here's the second monk you ought to know about. And there'll be others later, but just a couple for now. It's Jerome. J-E-R-O-M-E. I like Jerome. That was my granddaddy's name, Jerome. He lived from 345 to 420. He was a monk and a scholar. He translated the Vulgate, which is a Latin translation of the Bible. Vulgate just comes from the Latin word, I think, vulgare, vulgar, or common. The Vulgate was the official Bible of the Roman Catholic Church for something over a thousand years. Now, here's the thing, just, just as a side note, we won't follow this very far, but just as a side note, how many regular, common people do you think during this thousand years can read and speak and understand Latin? Now, re- remember, remember who conquered the Western Roman Empire. It was King Odiacer, the German Goth, a barbarian. And they adopted most of the Roman culture. The only thing they, they seem to really reject is Latin. So Latin essentially becomes a dead language pretty quick in the maybe the 5th, early 6th century. Thank the Lord. Thank the Lord that Odiacer and the barbarians did not want to keep Latin around. You ever tried to, did you ever have to learn any Latin, study Latin? Uh, They used to say um, Latin, Latin, hard as it could be. First it killed the Romans and now it's killing me. So so why does why would the why would the the Latin Vulgate, a Latin translation of the Bible, be the official Bible in the Roman Church, Roman Catholic Church for a thousand years? When 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 the common people don't speak it or read it, it's so they don't know it. It's so they don't have it. It's so you have a few who tell the masses what's in it. And they can tell you anything they want to tell you if you don't know what's in it. They can make you believe or disbelieve anything they like about it. But we'll get there. Not tonight, but we'll get there. So a couple of responses to Leo. You have the people who move to the extreme. They don't want any part of it. They run out to the deserts. You see monks, nuns, and monasteries pop up. But by and large, by and large, most Christians embrace the changes of Pope Leo I. They embrace this this newfound acceptance, and who could blame them? If you think about it, who could, who could blame them? Uh, would you prefer preference or persecution? Think about your own prayers. I mean, we always pray for safety. Oh, Lord, please don't make me have to do anything that might scare me or hurt me. 
for sure don't send me to a, a foreign country where it's against the law to tell other people about Jesus. So you teach them English with the hopes of telling them about the gospel of Jesus. Not everybody prays that way, Beverly. Most people say, oh, Lord, don't put me in a comfortable, uh, an uncomfortable situation. But during this time, serious problems develop. I've alluded to this already. L- let, me, let me just bear down on this for a few minutes and give you what I see as six problems that develop during this time. The age of imperial Christianity. Number one, people began to see the church as an institution rather than as the body of Christ. So the church becomes an organization, not an organism. Systems are great. Processes are great. Needed. Absolutely have to have them. But the the church is not an organization. There needs to be organizational factors in there, right? Um, The bank expects it. You have to have accounting systems. You have to have stewardship systems. We have an assimilation. We have eight systems. Just like your body has eight systems, we have eight systems that we work off here in our church. You have to have systems, but you have systems just like a body has systems, and a body is organic. The church ought to be organic. It's not just an institution. And, and even though you might be a person who thinks, you know, I wish or I think the church ought to run more like a business. Well, how many of you actually want the church to operate just like the business that you come from? Not many. But that's one of the things that happens. People begin to look at the church like an institution. Number two, the gospel was diluted. Listen, if everybody's becoming a Christian, well, I shouldn't say it like that. Because we're not sure that everybody was becoming a Christian. We're pretty sure that's not what was happening. People are not having genuine conversion experiences, but they're becoming members of the church. The gospel is diluted. Number three, the church lost sight of its mission, which is to reach the world with the good news of Jesus Christ and to make disciples. Listen, when I was a kid growing up in West Charlotte, the Southern Baptist Convention then was strong in missions, very strong in missions. It wants to be strong today, but it's, it's not that strong when it comes to missions. Maybe it is compared to other denominations, but it's, it's a fraction of what it was like when I was a kid. And my home church was big on missions. We, missions were very important to us. And I think one of the reasons that missions was so important to us then is because we didn't know who around us was not a Christian. Everybody went to church. Now, I don't know if it was necessarily like that in New England, but here it was. So you just assume you're next door neighbors. I mean, they go to church. So you don't go across the you know, the backyard fence to talk to your neighbor about Jesus, so you focus on people that are across the ocean. 
Number four, genuine Christian conversion became vague. It became vague. Church membership number five began to replace intimately following Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You became a member. And membership had its rights. I mean, you, you, can see, you can see this when you think about the development of our own nation. The, the freedom of religion. Why would our forefathers think that that's so important? Because in the old country, across the pond, you had to be baptized to be a member of the church. Your name had to be on the church roll for you to be able to own land, own property, have any say in what happens in your local community. The church and state, they were all connected together. They were all tied together. Well, that didn't start in Great Britain. That starts all the way back in the 4th and 5th century. So now the important thing was not so much that a person had a heartfelt heartfelt conversion experience with Jesus, and then that's demonstrated through their baptism, because they they began to no longer have believer's baptism. You were baptized as an infant. And so it became about church membership. Are you on the church membership role? Not have you had a conversion experience with Jesus Christ. Number six, the authority of Scripture became less and less as the authority of the bishops and the papacy became greater and greater. Because who begins to have the final say? Remember old Constantine? Remember how Constantine treated the other bishops? He, he treated them like they were employees of the government. And whatever he said went. And it didn't matter if it was a contradiction of, with um, Christian tradition or a contradiction of scriptures. He expected to be obeyed. The same thing begins to happen here in the church. And then number seven, servant leaders were replaced with leaders of servants. Not my phrase, but I wish it was. That belongs to Bruce Shelley. Servant leaders were replaced with leaders of servants. Okay, still with me? We're getting close to being finished here, but I want to go in a little different direction. I want to talk... And, you know, we can't talk about everyone, can we? We just can't talk about every person, every name, every issue. Uh, and about three weeks from now, we're going to talk a little more about some of the synods and different things like that. But for just the next few minutes here, I want to talk to you about three preachers that you ought to know about. Three preachers. I think I have them listed in your notes. But John Chrysostom or Chrysostom, origin of Alexandria, that's Alexandria, Egypt, and Theodore of Mopsuesta, also called Theodore of Antioch. 
First, let me talk about origin of Alexander, uh, of Alexandria. He was a tremendous scholar and tremendous preacher. He developed a style of preaching called allegory. Say that with me, allegory. Anybody know what allegory means? You probably remember it from English literature class. It, it, as it relates to the scripture, it just means that when you look at a passage of scripture, you, you ask, okay, w- what is the meaning behind the meaning? Or, or what, is, what is the hidden meaning in this passage? And I'll, I'll give you an example. Remember a few months ago when we studied the book of Ruth? Remember how Ruth, uh, she goes back to, um, back to Bethlehem with Naomi, and she goes out in the fields to glean, and Boaz sees her out there, and he has a woo-wee moment. And uh, he invites her, does that translate woo-wee? Yeah. Um, he, he invites her to have a meal with him. What did they have? They had bread and wine. I mean, Bethlehem, you know, that's a, that's a Hebrew word. Bet means the house of Lechem is bread. It's the house of bread. So you know they're eating bread. It's the house of bread, for goodness sakes. So they have bread and wine. Well, what Origen would do is he would look at a passage like that and say, oh, well, what you have there with the bread and wine, that's obviously the Lord's Supper. But it's all the way back there in Ruth. Now, that, that's not too bad of an example. The problem, though, with allegory is that you can make the Bible say through allegory practically anything you want it to say. And you can make it say some silly, silly things when you don't take it for face value. Okay? So then we have John Chrysostom. He taught the historical, grammatical, contextual, linguistic interpretation of Scripture. What what does it say? It, It says what it says, and it means what it means. He believed and taught that the Bible is the Word of God and that it has authority over our lives because it is God's Word. See, when it comes to the Bible, there are three places you can stand. You don't have this in your notes, and so you don't have to write it down, but just try to remember. There are three places you can stand when it comes to the Scripture. Number one, you can stand over it. You shouldn't, but you can. So you can look down at the Bible and decide for yourself what it means and uh, whether it's relevant to your life or um, whether you should do it or not. Now, Most of us would not admit to approaching the Bible that way, but I'm telling you, a lot of us live that way. Because some some people, I see legalistic people do this all the time. There's something in there that they'll just hold on to. They wouldn't dare do, you know, these four things. But they have no problem with gluttony. So you can, you can tell the Bible what it means and what you're going to do with it. That, that's one approach. The second approach is you can stand beside of it. Lots of folks do this. Lots of seminary or college professors, 
will do this. A lot of preachers, we, we, we sometimes do this. We talk about it, study it, learn about it. But talking about it and learning it is about it. We don't do anything with it. The third stance you can take with the Bible is you can stand under it. And this is where you ought to be. You stand under the Bible as the authority over your life. That, that was the stance that, that John Chrysostom took. And, and this is the only place for a Christian to stand. You know, unfortunately, just a small group of, or a small percentage of Christians today who would call themselves evangelical Christians actually believe that the word of God is the word of God and that it has authority over our lives. It's unfortunate. So you've met Origen, you've met John Chrysostom. The third preacher I think you ought to know something about is Theodore of Mopsuestia or Theodore of Antioch. He was the bishop of Antioch and he had a school of preaching where he taught the Bible as the literal word of God. He taught the divinity of Jesus, which, listen, we'll, we'll talk about this on down the road, but that was very much caught into question. One of the reasons for the Council of Constantinople was to figure out this whole thing of the Trinity. How, how can God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit all be the same? How could they be one God in three persons? Um, and what you have is lots of, lots of people at that time, bishops included, who were teaching that Jesus was not, was not divine. But Theodore of Antioch, he taught it just like the Bible said it. He explained the Bible. That's what expository preaching is. It's explaining the Bible. Here's what, it, here's what the Bible says. This is what, what it means, and this is what you do with it. It's just explaining the Bible so that people can live by it. Okay, now, maybe you're thinking, Jimmy, what in the world do we need to know this for? Like, why does it matter that we know who these three preachers are? Well, there are more preachers that you ought to know about. But I mentioned these because these are some heavy hitters, especially Chrysostom and Theodore of Antioch. The influence that these men have will last for a few generations. But the church quickly outgrows them. And this kind of preaching where you explain the scriptures and you teach people how to live the scriptures, it goes away. And the church begins to make this, this slide. It's gradual at first, but late in the fifth century, it really picks up speed. The church slides into... The Dark Ages. Now, a lot of historians today don't call the Dark Ages the Dark Ages. And if they do, they make it out to be something 
you know, the light was this and the darkness was that. And But what happens, what happens really is the teaching of the Bible, explaining the Bible, what it means and how to live by it. It goes to the wayside. And the dark ages last from mid-late 5th century, and it lasts into the 15th century, nearly a thousand years. And the world grows dark as Western Europe in particular is devastated culturally, economically, morally, in practically every way that you can imagine. It falls apart. And I'm sure that some, you know, history professor out there that knows a whole lot more than I do would say that guy, he's just an evangelical pastor. And of course, he's teaching this in a way that benefits him. But you just go back and look at history. When the church stops preaching the Bible, teaching the Bible, what it means. And now people begin to live as though the church is an institution and it lives by the local bishop's word who's living um, or who's acting or who's handing down as law as the head of the church, you know, the bishop of Rome, the pope, as the church takes on his authority, it just gets dark. The church gets dark. I wish I could tell you that it gets better and better, but it doesn't. It's going to really decline. And it does become dark. And the word of God is all but snuffed out. And that did not change until All Hallows' Eve, October 31st. 1507, when a German monk named Martin Luther walked through the streets of Wittenberg, Germany and nailed his 95 theses or his 95 protestations, his protestations, his protest against the church, his points of debate with the church and the castle church door that things begin to change. Lord have mercy, I can't wait till we talk about John Haas and Martin Luther and Zwingli and Anabaptist. It's about to get good. Let me uh, let me wrap up our our study right there. I'll pray with us and then we'll have some QA together. Lord, thank you for our time together. And uh, thank you for the things that we've learned. Lord, um, help us not to just gloss over these things. You know, we read and we learn history because it's interesting. But we should really study it because we have lessons to learn from it. So help us to learn from these lessons. We pray in Jesus' great name. Amen. All right.